All right. Um, welcome to the Mystagogy of the Church, part one. Um, today, I want to uncover and, and deacon Lincoln. Well, the thing about mystagogy is you kind of pick up little bits and pieces along the way according to like what teachers you've had, what books you've read, because there's 2,000 years of layering on some of these things. And so there's different angles, different editions. And when it comes to understanding the liturgy, um, there are very few things where it's like, well, no, there's really like a one right interpretation and then a bunch of barnacles kind of added on. But most of them, it's like um, so there was something that kind of came into use and then um, someone thought, well, I'm going to use this as a devotional prompt in this way. And then a few hundred years later, someone was like, well, I'm going to use it in a devotional prompt this way. And then the original reason it came into use got forgotten anyways. And so there's more than one right answer is what I'm saying. So Deacon and I will kind of ping pong on different things, but... Um, I wanted to look first um, at, uh, today we're going to look at the sp- uh, liturgical space and vestments, uh, and then the first half of the service, which is called the Liturgy of the Word. So, and then next time we'll look at the Liturgy of the Table. So that's kind of how I'll break it down. Any opening comments, Deacon? Not right now. Okay. All right, so um, liturgical space, churches are um, traditionally oriented um, facing east, which is actually a flip from the way the tabernacle and temple were set up. So in the temple, the sort of, if you walk in the entrance gate, the far end that you'd be looking at would be west. And you'd be standing at the altar and you'd see the, the, the tent of meeting over there, and that was west. Um, now the church, the church, the Christian church has flipped it. So we're facing east. And I sometimes think that it's like we, as the people, as the priesthood of God, are standing in the Holy of Holies looking at the altar rather than standing at the, as sort of the outside gate kind of flipped. Um, and the idea of east, and what's wonderful is we actually are facing roughly, this building is facing roughly east, I assume by accident, but when you go to old Europe, you see that most of the churches, wherever, whatever site they're built on, are faced so that the way you're facing it is east. Um, and the idea has sort of one primary significance, which is um, that that's where the sun rises, obviously. And there's that prophecy in I always get Malachi and Micah mixed up, but the son of righteousness, Micah, Malachi. In Malachi, one of the M minor prophets, it says, um, the, son, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And it's understood that you know, the Lord built nature itself combined with that prophecy that there's this sort of bright orb of light that rises. And it's sort of a picture for us of the second coming of Christ, that he's going to be coming again with healing in his wings and in English, we even have the double wordplay of like sun, S U N, sun, S O N. Yeah, so it's like, so there's, there's a sort of sense of like, we gather on Sunday morning, um, and then intentionally too, around sunrise, like churches, I mean, our service is very quite early. It's kind of become more customary to be later. But we know that the resur- Jesus showed his resurrected self right at dawn on Easter morning. And so that's why we meet just after dawn on Sunday is because it's like this was the very day and close to the very hour on which Jesus showed himself to have conquered the grave. And so then when your church is facing east, you've got the sun coming in the window. And, you know, I know that it blinds different people on a Sunday morning, but that's actually by design. They're like, yeah, the sun is, I, I love being in a church when the sun whites me out. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's so glorious. Um, yeah, and then there's another layer too of, um, so that's the primary devotional significance. There is a secondary in that on this side of the hemisphere, for us it also is facing Eden. And so there's this idea of remembering paradise from which we were cast out for our sins, but which we are being brought into again through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, Eden, rising sun, that's all there kind of in the east-west symbolism. So even if the church isn't actually on its plot facing east, you still call this the east end of the church, even if it's not even east, because it's liturgical east. So if for some reason you, could, you just physically couldn't build the building that way, um, it's still called the east end of the church. So. And would you say that most Protestant churches, Presbyterian through Baptist, do not regard what you said with any serious, not seriousness is the right word, but that's not something important to them, the way they construct churches? I think, I think that's right. It, it was... Um, became very standardized after like the 8th century, the Charlemagne's Renaissance. And then um, when the sort of the great phase of building began in the Western Europe, uh, and there were, all through the Middle Ages, and then the Anglican Church kept the memory and continued its significance. And the continental reformers sort of ditched the idea. Um, and some, a lot of that comes to mind with like, what are we gathering for church for? 
and there's less of a sacramental idea, and so. Um, okay, you'll find most of their cemeteries, the graves are facing. <coughs> really? I didn't know that. Delightful. Huh, oh, nice. And all the, and the old ones. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Waiting for the second coming. Wow. There was like a 30-year window of cemeteries in America, a grave, graves in America, where it was like the style, you know how like this kind of fashions, and um, to do like a, have your, your, your thing be a stone plate on, a, on top of a, a, a ridge, so it looks like a little door. I mean, it wouldn't be easily opened, but the idea that you could open it from the inside, kind of pointing to this idea of the resurrection, like when I'm raised, I'm just going to pop this door off. And of course... We know that the Lord can walk through doors, so we assume we'll be able to walk through the grave, no problem. But it was a sweet devotional idea, like, oh, they're just going to come on out of there. Yeah. Um, and when I'm talking about great, I'm talking about like old ones, like when yeah. the were settlers here. Not, oh, right, okay. Not necessarily new ones. Like yeah. Hmm. My daddy keeps a lot of them. Oh, right, okay, yeah. It'd be interesting to see as a cultural history, when did like cardinal directions sort of lose their significance? I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then so the center line down the church is sometimes referred to as the axis mundi, like the the axis of the world. I don't know why actually what the significance of that is, but you'll see it referred to that way sometimes. And churches are customarily the what? Mundi M U N D I, the Latin word for for world. Um, and uh, the churches are traditionally seated with a center aisle and side to side seating. Um, for long ages, I mean, into the Renaissance, I mean, for centuries and centuries. Actually, Emily and I were talking about this just the other day. Um, the men would sit on this side and the women on this side, and we still see a vestige of that in weddings when the man stands on this side and the woman on this side. Um, and you would sit parallel in pew to your family, so you wouldn't just, like, totally scatter. But the idea, too, was in a culture where you had a lot more deaths and, you know, large family groups and stuff and single people and, you know, you you would sort of divide, and, and that was how seating was, um, yeah, well into the Renaissance. And then, um, but one of the th- significant th- pieces about a center aisle is the synagogue from which we came uh, actually had sort of like stages of ranked seating, and so you had like the men were prioritized at the front, uh, and then Gentiles and women in, in different like, sort of back sections. And so right away in, when they, Christians started meeting, they actually rethought through their sort of habits of seating and assembled according to the truth of Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there's neither male nor female. And so women can't be at the back. We need to be as close to the front together as possible. So there was women and men on the front pew and there's no one is closer to, sort of, to the holy table. They were equally close. Uh, and then, you know, after what happened was in the Renaissance era, rich families started building kind of walled boxes of seating and so a pew, we think of the pew for, like, as this, but through most of history, the word pew meant like a box seat. Think about like at a sports game or something. We have like walled in little window you can kind of see up front. But then the rich people then would stop coming, but they would still pay for their boxes so no one else could go in. So you'd have like the first two thirds of the church filled with these empty boxes, maybe one family, two families. And then the poor had to stand in the back. And so it was actually one of the heritages of the Oxford movement of the 19th century that said, this does not please God tear those pews out of there and have free and open seating. So um, the way in which seating is now in the Anglican Church is, was revived in the 19th century. Prior to the Renaissance, you usually just stood in church. There would be benches along the side for the infirm, but you would just basically stand for the whole service. So here's, um, a, here's a question. Yeah. I know the trope is that everybody sits in the back to be away from, the, to be, you know, not in the front. Mm. But is that a vestige of like a memory of oh, the wow. fact the front the full the front was reserved for the rich people. It might be, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, you I wonder how this stuff trickles in. Pentecostal preachers calling you out. That could be too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 to be yeah. seen. Yeah. Or in chicks, in chicks' position, like he was, he was only at the front when he got in trouble as a child. Yeah. yeah. So it was bad memories for him. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get, get by with a lot more in the back end. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, that, that describes some of our seating. And then this part of the church, that most tradition, I'm glad we have a step here. There is always traditionally at least a two-stepped uh, space. Often in the old churches, you actually see a three steps. Where the, the, the space where the altar is, that level, that vertical level is called the sanctuary. 
And then the space below the Sabbath, if you have, a, if you have an intermediate space, that's called a chancel. And then the space where the people of God sit is called the nave, which if that sounds like the word navy, that's right, because I forget what the original Latin word that got sanded down to just the word nave, but the idea is that we are in the ship, the ark, the ark of God, like Noah's ark. And so you'll even see sometimes in architectural design things that look like boat hulls, kind of like in the roof, in the, the way the roof is built. And so th- this, this does us pretty well, actually, in that way. It feels ark-like. Um, yeah, the, the best... The best spaces that, I, that like stick in my memory are the ones where it looks like you're looking up at the rim of the ship. Yeah. Yeah. It, which was by, which is by design to feel like boat like. Um, so this is the nave. This is the nave. Yeah. And so in uh, in Protestant parlance, we sort of sometimes think about just the whole space as sanctuary, but in Anglican parlance, we'll sometimes think of we we'll usually reserve that term just for the platform where the altar is. That's the sanctuary. So the furniture. Makes the makes the name of the space. So if you have a room with a font in it, that becomes a baptistry. So. And then you said after a couple of steps, that's the chancel. Yeah, if you have an intermediate space, that's Before a chancel. Yeah, and sometimes like if you watch the coronation, you'll see a choir sitting in the chancel. Mm-hmm. So often a choir sitting in a chancel. Um, and then if you have a chancel, that's where the ministers would sit prior to the liturgy of the table when you kind of ascend to the next step um, for the celebration of communion. So some of that's kind of ultra distilled in this space, but. We, we still get the rough approximation. Um, and then part of that, I mentioned furniture, we have our font at the front. If you don't have a standalone room or building for baptisms, which would be a baptistry, the ordinary place to have it is at the front. And this is an intentional reminder that we enter the church of God, we have entered the church of God through the waters of baptism. And so that's why you'll notice some folks, I think some of you guys do it too, like you dip your hand in the water and make the sign of the cross coming in as a way of just marking as a physical re- reminder, like, I am among the blessed of God. Like, I w- I've come through the waters of baptism. I come through the body and blood of Christ t- today. Uh, and it's just this sort of refresher blessing of that baptismal identity. Um, and hence, and hence it's at the entrance as well. So you, you walk by that to then enter the nave, the ark of God, uh, and then proceed into the, sort of the, towards the table. It's kind of a double reminder of... Um, and, and baptism now saves you mm. from First Peter. Uh, you have the the actual baptistry, but then you also have the ark. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just as no doubt, right? Double, double reminder. That's right. Yeah, of that truth. Mm. I think it's another sign too that you're actively when you come in and cross yourself and remember your baptism. You're actively saying, "This is my team." Yes. Yeah. yeah. To the spiritual forces that be. Yeah. yeah. Like, breathing, Constantly saying, I'm choosing, I'm choosing, yeah. the, you know, yeah. I have been chosen and I'm choosing. Yes, yeah. The fathers had this neat idea that, um, I don't remember where I first read it, but the idea that you're re etching the symbol of the cross each time that you. Yeah, as if with a stylus. Yes. So, like deepening the yeah. groove, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I forget what that is, too. Yeah. Yeah. Where did yeah. it? Um, Early baptism rites. Yeah. yeah. So from the very first written record we have of, Christ, of church baptisms outside of the New Testament, they mentioned making the, the mark of the cross on the forehead. And then right away it was picked up that there's this kind of cryptic prophecy in Ezekiel that says like the angel marks the people of God and that they can see who's marked. And they sort of picked up on that prophecy and en- enacted it as a, as a part of the rite. And so for actually until about the year 1000, the, when you made the sign of the cross, you made it real small on your forehead, retracing the yep. sign that was marked on your forehead when you were baptized. So when I pray for my kids at night, each night I, I make the sign of the cross on their forehead just as a little reminder. Like, um, and so, but then it kind of got bigger in the monasteries and then by the 12th century or something, it's the full form one that we have now. Um, but for the first millennium, it was just a tiny one. Um, and I kind of like remembering the tiny one because you can do it in public without making a sh- bigger show. But if there's things in the public where I'm just like kind of messing with my head and I'm like, Lord, help me. Just make the quick sign of the cross, you know, and no one can even notice. But it, it, it reminds me a physical prompt to remember that I need to take my thoughts captive to Christ and Christ be the Lord of my mind. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so it's from baptism. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, yeah, you'll notice sometimes I say um, gospel side, epistle side, when we talk about the Psalms. 
It's because um, for at least a thousand years, the gospel has been set on this side of the table, just like we said it. And so that's the gospel side. And so everything on this side, because people realize there's the problem of like, well, right or left? Well, who's right or left? Facing this way or facing this way? The classic theater problem. Um, so we say gospel side and epistle side, just because that's really established. And so this is the gospel side candlestick. That's the epistle side candlestick. This is the gospel redo. That's the epistle pre- You know, like you can divide that way. Um, and um, yeah. Um, all right. Um, any other thoughts on space before we go to vestments, Deacon, or just or furniture layout? I can't think of anything. Uh-huh. Yeah. Space is one that that I I always feel like I learn something new every time we talk about it. So. Yeah, yeah. Feel free if you have questions. Yeah. Is it worth just mentioning that it was the Refor- the Protestant Reformation that moved the pulpit to the center as they thank you altar away? I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. So this is a classically Protestant feature to have the central pulpit. The more traditional way um, is what's called a split chancel, where you actually have two lecterns. Um, and then you actually, for long ages, you would actually read the gospel from the one and read the epistle from the other because you had those two different ones. Uh, and then you preach from the gospel side and you'd preach from, so that, that was traditional. And so then the, what happens, and if, if God blesses us with our own space someday, this will be true, then the sort of visual focal point is the holy table and the reading of the word is to prepare us and guide us to full like participation in the sacred meal. So there is kind of, a, you know, you can look at any church and tell us the nomination and sort of where it sits in history by what does it foreground furniture-wise. And so if, if, well, if our stuff wasn't here, you'd walk in here and see pulpit. Oh, it's a church of the word. There isn't a clear table to set up anywhere. This is probably, you know, this is certainly a Baptist, you know, or a Protestant church. Um, so, yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, in the age before microphones, to reach a larger sitting space, they, they would, um, uh, plat- there's a word for it, um, yeah, tiered pulpit. You would tier the pulpit. And then you could actually even have re- readers at different levels. There's some, there's some where you actually have like kind of multiple standing platforms, one for the reading of the word, and then one for getting up and preaching. And so there's, all, there's a fascinating, all kinds of interesting architectural examples. And some of the ones in the old cathedrals, like built around the pillars. Um, yeah. So, yeah. There's lots of stuff there. Yeah. Why is it divided into the gospel and the side? Um, if there is a like a significant meaning, I don't know it. But I'd, like in terms of why, why isn't it over there or over here? I don't know. Um, why is it even? What does it even mean? Good question. Um, so some of it probably began functionally in that, like, uh, prior to modern books it was rare to have the Bible in a single, by modern I mean the last 500 years, <laughs> in a single book. You would have a book of the Gospels and a book of the Epistles. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually there wasn't a book of Old Testament readings because Old Testament readings only entered the communion service in the 1970s. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. For all of, for basically all of church history, you didn't do Old Testament readings as, the, as part of the communion service. You would do them as part of the daily service, but not, not the Sunday service. Um, and some of that was a little bit like, well, it's actually kind of, it's kind of complicated. But, the, um, but anyway, so you don't, some of it, I think, was you just had different books, a book for the gospel and the epistle. Uh, and then oftentimes, m- most of our pre-printing press Bibles are actually like lectionary Bibles, where it's not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's first Sunday of Advent, second Sunday of Advent, third Sunday of Advent. And so you actually just have the reading kind of right there as you would be ready to read it. Um, so lectionaries make up the bulk of our manuscripts of the first millennium by quantity. They're most of them are lectionaries. Um, so yeah, good, good question. But, I, but why this size gospel and that size not? I don't know. But, and, and the split, I think, was just different books. Um, it, if I had to guess... Yeah. With the men on this side and, and the well, over there. And some of this is regional too. In yeah, that, that's, that's good, a good point. Yeah. Well, but in the Byzantine church, for, and still to this day, they actually keep their lectern in the middle of the congregation. If you go to like an old uh, Greek church, they'll have like a multi-step platform literally right here where all the readings are read from. So some of these things aren't universal in every time and place. So actually our custom of bringing the gospel out, that was reintroduced in the 1960s 
as a throwback to the Byzantine way of having the gospel come out to the um, to the middle, yeah. because it was recognized that it has this great symbolic value of like the word comes among you and is near you and come, you know and it's it's announced in your very midst. So is the is the split is the split chancel a typical feature of the Western? Church? Yes, it's, I should have said it's uniquely Western. Yeah. yeah, the Eastern reads everything from the middle. Am- they call it an ambo instead of a lectern. But so if you're facing this direction and the gospel is on this side and the epistles on this side, that's the right hand. That's the right side. So yeah, that's kind of what I think I know where sitting, you're going. Yeah, sitting at the right hand. Right hand of the Father. The Father. Yeah, there might have been some significance there in terms of when whoever was the first person to pick that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably, a lot of these things, we could go on like a hunt and find some more da- data. I just don't have, now I'm going to kind of curiously look up at this stuff. But, um, so I want to talk a bit about vestments. Um, so Deacon is our model, our living model here. Um, so the base vestment um, is the cassock, which is black, but that is really is actually just street clothes, the cassock is. It's not a part of ch- vesting in church at all, yeah. Now these days, you would re- only see it really for priests, but if you went to the well, think about this. Think about the classic Puritan outfit, like the black thing and the... What they're actually wearing is a cassock. It was actually just the garment of simplicity in the 15th through the 17th centuries. And so the garment of simplicity has sort of like remained, like before trousers were for everybody's fair. Um, but it got kind of remained as sort of the undergarment for the clergy, and now we think of it as exclusively clergy. But it wasn't always so. Anybody used to be able to wear a cassock prior to the maybe 1700s. Uh, C-A-S-S-O-C-K. Um, and then the outer garment is, um, there's two different ones, if they have sleeves or not, it's an alber surplus, but it's white. And this is one of the few liturgical things which was picked for exactly this reason, which is that it was white because it, what a symbol of the fact that we have been clothed in Christ and made white in the blood of the Lamb. And so any Christian is permitted to wear the white garment because you are, it's yours by virtue of baptism. And so that's why the altar servers wear the surplus. Stephen wears the surplus. What will you say that the surplus? The surplus? Yeah. Yeah. And then this particular one is called an alb, A-L-B, which is short for the Latin word for white. But so this is the baptismal garb, which is obviously the first layer to go on because that were first Christians. And then on top of our Christian identity, we, we then are privileged to minister in the sanctuary. And so the stole is a symbol of authority, and it's worn in two different ways. Deacon's wearing it in the deacon way, and then the priest, uh, and if, you, if you've come to some small services, you've probably seen then the priest wears it straight up and down. And this was actually a Roman, like as in Roman Empire garment, that was a symbol of initiative. I forget exactly. There's some philosophers wore them, yeah. senators wore them. So there's this kind of thing of saying like, I'm like the chairman kind of was sort of what it meant in its secular identity. And then the church kind of grabbed it and like, okay, well, who's preaching? Okay, you guys wear this, you know? Yeah, it basically means what we would, because you'll, you'll, you'll sometimes see in, in older Anglican books talking about the president of the service. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, so it's, it's that idea. It's yeah. That, yeah. The, the presider, mm. not the not the presidentism. Yeah. 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 And correct me if I'm wrong, but the, isn't the deacon idea with the side thing that has a bit of an overtone of the Lord um, wrap the towel around him, like ready to serve? I think yeah, that was sort I of a serving quality. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm honestly not sure. Uh, yeah. That's another thing. Because I think it was originally <laughs> one that was just like this that then was tied, mm-hmm. and as a way of saying, like, I'm here to serve, because deacon yeah. means servant. Um, and then um, the, uh, you don't, so Lincoln is fully dressed for liturgy, and I would be too with just the stole, but then an additional layer of sort of super garment, like over the top, came along. Um, and the origins in some cases are a little obscure, but you'll see them as late as early as like the fifth or sixth century in like mosaics, like in, um, so this is, a, it looks like a giant t-shirt called a Dalmatic, and it's a uniquely deacon's garment. And, so, and the priest one is called chasuble, and it doesn't have sleeves. Um, and the, the cut is significant for the chasuble, and I don't, I don't know the issue of the Dalmatic, but the chasuble um, is actually intentionally imitative of the garment that the Lord had, which the soldiers didn't want to tear because it was made of one piece. Remember that sort of subtle detail in the passion narrative? 
And so our oldest chasubles and still today the best are woven in a single piece around the neck hole. And they're like $20,000 and so expensive. But like, um, so because, and this idea of that like when the person who's wearing this, when they're proclaiming the word and giving the very body of Christ, they're sort of acting um, in a sort of picture way like Christ, bringing the word and his body to us. And so it's a sort of imitative of Christ in that way. Um, and then different symbolisms have attached, like because it's sort of one big, you know, the, if you can picture the template of this, it's just a giant circle. There's, well, there's prayers with all these things. So when Deacon and Deacon and I pray, and we got it up in the sacristy, we put on the album, we pray, make me white, O Lord, and cleanse my heart that made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may rejoice in everlasting bliss. Oh, I forgot, the cincture. The cincture has a practical purpose of just like holding all the garments together, but it is the actual original chastity belt. The prayer of putting on the cincture is, gird me about, O Lord, um, with the girdle of, uh, of continence and, the, and quench the fire of lust to the virtue of chastity and purity may evermore abide in me. And then the stole is um, restored to me, O Lord, the stole of immortality lost through the sin of my first parents and give me grace that I may um, come to everlasting life. And then the chasuble, I can never remember the chasuble one. Um, hmm. Yeah, can't remember the chasuble one. But this pattern is the orphrey, and its intention. This shape is supposed to um, be imitative of a twofold symbol. One, it's kind of cross-like, but the larger initial symbolic choice was um, to look like a yoke that you yoke oxen with. If you can picture like a sort of piece of wood that would kind of harness over the shoulders of oxen, and you could like drive them with a hand plow or something. Um, and the idea was that there's just, there just seems to be a lot of overlap of oxen imagery with apostles and ministers in the New Testament. Like, um, there's that teaching you know, about when Paul's talking about pay the ministers, about, you know, uh, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And so ordained clergy is sometimes been referred to as like the oxen of the Lord. Like you're yoked, your life is kind of hooked and anchored, and you're, you're a servant, you're not your own. And, and so uh, this, is, this is the yoke, is the orphrey design. So, and then, um, yeah. Um, oh, and then the great, one of the great values, which I, I, I hope has been impressed at some unconscious level of, of vestments, is it minimizes visually the uniqueness of Ben Lincoln or whoever. That like, I actually really think kind of the, in the same way visually, whoever was celebrating as priest, you would only see, you know, 10% of the, what visually is they're occupying your visual field is them uniquely and 90% is the role. I think that's about right. That it's like any minister brings the, obviously themselves, but really that's only like a 10% contribution. 90% of it's the role. Preach the word, say these prayers, bring the communion, you know, and it is a way in which like military uniform or something, it's the office that, and the vestment communicates that. And it also veils that like, except for now, and you can see what I wear when I'm not wearing other, you know, other things. <laughs> it also hides any sort of socioeconomic markers of like, well, look at my $2,000 suit and my fancy leather shoes, you know. And so, I, mean, I guess you can still see the shoes, but it kind of minimizes uh, class distinction. And so one of the things I love at the Anglican Church is where the rich and poor feel equally comfortable ordinarily in an Anglican church. Um, and that's a win. So, yeah. Whereas if you see like a really rich or really poor minister, you think, oh, well, that's what this church is or something. Um, Oh, that, huh. that, that that's a, at least that's what I've heard in the way I've grown up. Like that, like high church. Yeah. So that is high church, yeah. Right. And so the I, I, I fully, I'm with you on why yeah. I, on, on your point, and I see it, but I think there's a huge group that misunderstands yeah. what it's trying to signal, the, the goals of it. Yes, know? that's right, yeah. And, and Dallas, all it takes is a run-in with one priest who is holier than thou in the bad way. Well, I guess it's always a bad way. Um, but, um, I mean, it would be good to be actually holier, but to be, you know, and, and then to sort of, to wear the vestments with sort of a smug pride that then is, makes it so odious. Um, I think that era has, is sort of fading away as we sort of leave Christendom. Um, I mean, I talk about older priests and 
you know, everyone, anytime they went to the gas station, someone bought their gas, and every time they're at a restaurant, someone bought their meal. And now, like, you just get weird looks like you're a creeper or something. And it's like, so the social, the social honor is gone. So I think we're seeing less of that holier than thou smugness about it, which is good. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, and then I just wanted to mark a little thing about um, kind of numerology. And a lot, number of features I've done in the church with a, some numerology in mind. I mean, numerology meaning the symbolic significance of numbers and all of the cardinal. The sort of early digits have have right at hand devotional significance. So um, twos, anything you see in twos will either be significant of the two natures of Christ or the two testaments, or you can add both on. So two candles, um, two co- yeah, you could think about two covenants, old and new. Um, threes obviously recall to us the Trinity, so we say holy, holy, holy in the song. We don't just say ho- we don't say holy, 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 holy. Right, we just say holy, 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 and that, you know, three Trinity. Um, fours obviously suggest um, the gospel. Four gospel authors. And here again, we don't, we didn't build this space. So, but if we were in a cathedral, I mean, any old church in the old world, you could kind of see like, oh, this. But even the little things like the gospel book, I put four crosses on the spine because four gospel writers. You know, so it's like, oh, four crosses, got four gospels. Um, the Jerusalem cross. This. This, this type of style cross is called the Jerusalem cross, and the imagery is four gospels, the gospel going out into the four corners of the world. That's like the traditional interpretation of the Jerusalem cross. Um, and then um, fives uh, for the wounds of Christ, right? Um, one, two, three, four, five. There's the five wounds of Christ. Um, you don't see six in, tradition, in most Christian uh, imagery, but then you do see seven traditional for the spirit of God or just the fullness of God's work. Think about the rev- lampstands and rev- lamps in Revelation. A lot of old churches you'll see, so not a lot, many churches you, you might see seven, uh, six hanging lamps in the, in the sanctuary area, but it's not six, it's actually seven because the seventh would be lighting the tabernacle where the communion is kept. So there's usually seven if you look for it. If you see six, look for a seventh. There usually is a seventh. And then eight is the number of also of completion. Baptismal fonts, traditionally, every one I've ever seen or heard about in the old world, they make it eight-sided, like an octagon stop sign. And the idea is this sort of, um, that when Christ was raised on the first day of the week, Sunday, because he was inaugurating the new creation, it's kind of like the eighth day, like the sort of adding on to the creation sequence. And so eight got mapped onto that. That eighth day idea was really big in early church preaching. Like a new creation has begun. Uh, and so I have drawings that one day I'm going to build. I want to build an eight, uh, an octagonal baptismal thing to hold the bowl. So, um, yeah, so there's a bit of numbers. Um, any thought, uh, thoughts on numbers? Um, and then um, I want to say a bit about bodily reverence. Um, on, among our Protestant brothers, we do the most sort of sitting, standing, kneeling movements. Uh, and the general idea is uh, stand to pray and to praise, kneel to confess and to pray, and then sit to listen for the word and the sermon. So we're using our body in those three different ways. And then we have different, um, we can also show honor with our body. And the traditional word for this is a genuflection, of which there is a solemn and a simple. So a simple genuflection is a nod of the head. And then a solemn genuflection is either a deep bow from the waist, which you'll see me and Deacon do in the midst of communion, um, or even if you have the space to, to take a knee, like the way you would like think of like the medieval image of a king going by and take a knee. Um, and so genuflections, these things are not, there's nothing in the prayer book that says, this is where you do this thing, because they aren't prescribed. There isn't like the, you must do, it's just that if you want to do this, feel free, and so you might notice some do it. Um, and then we show genuflection according to, you could say almost the degree to which um, Christ is presented in that thing. And so the two things that receive the, 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 the solemn genuflection, either a, a bow from the waist, or a, a taking of a knee is the presence of, of consecrated communion, because that's the very vehicle which the Lord is communicating to us, his body and blood. Um, or um, the bishop, that the bishop is tr- traditionally understood to be such a symbol of Christ's own ministerial presence to us, uniting us, gathering blessing, um, that traditionally when the bishop gives, you know how I bless at the end of the liturgy? 
when the bishop blesses, the tradition is to take a knee because it's as if Christ himself is blessing you. There's a sort of deep symbolism of the bishop there. Um, Ignatius writing in the first century, sorry, sorry, at the very beginning of the second century, in the early one, like 100, 105, like, so right the generation after the apostles have died, the very next generation, he says, and where the bishop is, there is the church. Um, where the bishop is, there is Christ ministering to you. So there's a powerful symbolism of the bishop. And then all other lesser things get sort of optional, more and more optional and lesser and lesser genuflections. So sometimes you, I've seen churches, the celebrant of communion, when he recesses out, like in seminary, whenever, whenever the priest recessed out, we would all just kind of, <laughs> like this sort of, thank, thank you for giving us communion, like this sort of very small gesture. Um, sometimes you'll see that same gesture with the processional cross, a sort of subtle bow of the head, because the cross is a symbol of, of Christ. Um, and then you'll see also a simple bow just at the verbally recalled uh, name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or the name of Jesus. You'll sometimes see like a physical gesture of reverence, a, ge- a, a simple genuflection. And again, these aren't things which are prescribed or enforced or right way. There's things you might have witnessed, uh, and that the, but there's this sort of idea of, um, you know, the very, just hearing the name Jesus is a blessing, and but it's it's less of a mediator of his gift than communion, and so it gets a slightly lesser, whereas communion gets the full bow. Um, so yeah, degrees of, of reverence. Um, yeah, any thoughts about that or? Um, so some yeah. things that we you, it, you don't see as much in this space because we don't. We don't typically go back and forth as much, but in the old, in some of the old places we've been in, like if somebody was lighting candles, they'd have to cross, and whenever they cross the center line, right. and that's related to what Father Ben's talking about, because it's in front of, like typically you'll have the tabernacle with, yeah. with pre-consecrated gifts in it. Right. Um, and then another thing you might see... Can I just pause on that, because sure. I'm glad go you mentioned that, yeah. i forgotten, yeah. So... We have it kind of, yeah, veiled here. It's kind of hard to tell, but um, in the presence of sort of consecrated bread and wine um, that, you know, is for us communion, the, um, that customer receives this, the solemn genuflection. Yeah, and so a serious pause, a bow from the waist or, or a knee. Um, and, and when, if we ever have our old altar back and we have the tabernacle back on top of the altar and that's a more visible thing, we'll kind of bring that back more clearly right. when it's not so tight. Um, but then even an altar without a tabernacle, because it's the very table at which communion is celebrated, even a bare altar will sometimes be reverenced with a simple head nod because, yeah. hey, this is the very place where the sacrament comes to us. Um, yeah, so you'll see kind of reverencing of Really, this is the, the altar, and I, a word about language. The prayer of Pharisee refers to it as a table or an altar table, and then usage often refers to it as an altar. Um, because in communion, there's sort of this dual thing in that it's a table because we all eat from it. But it's an altar in that it's a memorial sacrifice of Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. And when I say sacrifice, I don't mean killing. That's a limited, you know, some sacrifices in the Old Covenant are a killing of the goat or the bull. Some are just a giving to the Lord, like a grain offering. Here's the grain. Thank you. You know, it's a memorial offering, an offering that remembers and recalls Christ's one death for us once we're all on the cross. So, but the place you make an offering, and think about the offering of incense in the Old Testament, or the place you make an offering is called an altar. Um, and so actually, and, and then this, this piece of fabric is called the fair linen. Um, and the sort of symbolic map is that when Christ was killed, his body was placed wrapped in linen. And now we receive his sacramental body through the bread and the wine, also on this like fair linen. And so there's this sort of like map that actually there's even some medieval dramas in the midst of the Easter Sunday liturgy where you sort of like roll out the fair linen and make a big deal about like the linen placement. And so, yeah, so it's kind of connecting onto the gospel details there. Um, yeah. And then, and then another place where you might see somebody genuflect is especially in like with like if you go, ever, ever go to Christchurch or go to St. Peter's Cathedral, um, especially with older congregants who, who grew up uh, with this culture, you might see them at the end of the row. They'll either do a, a full knee or they'll take a bow. Yeah. And and that's again the same relation. It's towards the altar. It's towards the either the because uh, a lot of times they'll do it when they're going up to communion. So the communion table's already set. The the 
sanctified gifts are there. So it's, it's yeah. that showing respect, showing honor to our Lord. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and in a way, having the pulpit here visually obscuring the altar kind of mutes that instinct a bit. Um, but yeah, the, the, mac, the, the maxim I think is true is wherever Christ is, there he is to be honored. In the word, you know, when we, you know, we make the signs of the, you know, this, in the sacrament. And then the, um, the other, the other place that we, that sometimes we do it, and we've called the people to do it from time to time is in um, the, the incarnation proclamation in the Nicene Creed. Yes. Yeah. Right. Perfect segue, because I want to, for the liturgy of the word. Um, yeah. That was just what I was thinking. So any other last questions about space or vestment or ritual kind of generally? Do you guys know Word and Table, that podcast? It's uh, my favorite Anglican podcast. It's called Word and Table. So, yeah. Um, bowing when the gospel comes to the center of the aisle. Mm. But I don't know that. I'm pretty sure that's where I heard it because that's why I do it. And I, yeah. I know, um, Jerry, <laughs> you bow, right? As you said. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so. And, and, and this is Christ be in my mind, Christ be in my lips, Christ be in my heart. And it was originally just done by the deacon because he's about to read the gospel of Christ. But then in, in happy imitation, we've all, over, you know, centuries ago, we all started doing it because it's like, yeah, Christ in my mind and on my lips and in my heart too. And in a way, the sign of the cross sometimes functions as a sort of like, yeah, yeah, I want that too. So like at absolution, when we make the sign of the cross back. They were saying they did. I, they were, it went yeah. over everything. Yeah, yeah. All the time people bow and everything yeah. like that. Okay, so there's a so whole episode. Right. Yeah, if you're crossing past the tabernacle, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, are that, are that, there's a, yeah the episode on wood and table. Um, yeah. I think it's called the Anglican Traditioners. So, I don't remember what it's called, but it's all yeah. about yeah. some of what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And helping yeah. before I and then watching some people that have been here. Yeah. Right. It kind of is, it has this sort of soft transmission cultural element, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. you kind of we're all kind of moving towards the same asymptote of rituals together. Yeah. So yeah. And the sometimes we'll like kind of the. I don't. I don't want to use the word level, but uh, I don't know how to avoid it. The, the level to which you'll, you'll see people do these different things is sometimes called piety. Like they're... Yeah, they're, which is yeah. the unique way that Anglicans right. use it because yeah. usually it means actual holiness. Right. But for us, it just means yeah. what rituals do you do? Right, yeah. So <laughs> We still care about actual holiness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so... Um, yeah. Yeah, although I guess usually in culture it's used derisively. Like pious means yeah. fake yeah. holy. Yeah. Yeah, wow, what a sad thing that... Yeah, anyways... Um, okay, so then looking at the liturgy of the word, if you want to crack your prayer book open to page 123, you can think of the service um, as two pieces that are integrally connected, but you can clearly distinguish a middle. Um, and there's the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table, and the hinge in the middle is the piece and the offertory. Because you like exchange the piece and we set the table. That's, so the piece is really kind of the middle hinge. Offertory is actually really part of the table. So the piece is the hinge. You know, when we say peace of Christ, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the table. So we'll get to liturgy of the table next week. Um, But for liturgy of the word, um, we begin with the opening acclamation. um, And this is just a way of kind of like, Emily was saying, like, whose tribe we are, like, whose name have we gathered in? And it's always Christ's name, but then also marking an aspect of Christ's saving work. So, hallelujah, Christ is risen, right? We gather in the name of the risen Christ in in, uh, Easter season. We gather in the name of the Christ who, for whom we're waiting to come again in the Advent season. So we, um, aspects of Christ, but we always get, it's just announcing, lest anybody be confused, we've gathered here in the name of the triune God and Jesus Christ. Um, and then sometimes there's a place to sign the cross at the beginning, kind of like walking into the building, like, we're doing this worship in the name of the Jesus who was crucified. Like, let it be known. Um, the Collect for Purity was initially... Um, said only by the priest while he was getting vestments on prior to the service but it was such a good prayer that when people found it people started praying it before the service and then it made its way into the prayer book for everybody over time and really in the last 20 years the whole congregation has started saying it together because it's such a good prayer where it was like it it couldn't stay in hiding 
Um, and really this idea of the thoughts of the hearts. I mean, what a great um, way to begin. Say, Lord, like, let this be not just worship in outward form. The thoughts of the heart will glorify you. Um, and then um, we have a little bit of a sort of movement of like from law to gospel in the hearing of in Lent and Advent, the Ten Commandments or the summary of the law. The summary of the law is like shorter and might feel at first like less intense or less severe, except when you realize the standard is actually even higher, right? Like don't murder. Okay. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Oh boy. <laughs> right? And so immediately after law or summary of the law, we repent with a Kyrie, which is sort of the, the most micro confession, Lord have mercy. Um, and then we go on, you know, within a minute or two, we get to then hear the gospel read. Um, and then the gospel of absolution proclaimed, you know, at, at the end of the liturgy of the word. So it's a kind of a movement from law to gospel. The Gloria is a hymn written uh, in the early 300s. Um, it's very, very old and has been a part of the Sunday service really since then. Um, the large portion of it was written by S- uh, Hilary of Poitiers, um, who's sometimes called the, um, the Hammer of the Arians. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then we have the Collect Prayer, which is really one of our mile markers for the church year. That we, I know we, we, because we have the season, the acclamation tells us what season we're in. But the collect, there is a collect. If you've never seen the section, it's at the back of the book. Because there's a different one for each week, if you look at page 600 and, nope, 500, nope. It is 598, yeah. You can turn away. Don't worry, yeah. Thanks for coming for this. See you guys so you'll see every Sunday has a collect which sort of gives shape to that week as the subsection of the season that we're in. So that's why I think of them as mile markers. Um, and then if, as you, you all who've come to morning and evening prayer sometimes, you know, we pray this same collect every day of that week. All seven days get that collect until the next Sunday when you get the next one. And so you've got collects for walking all the way through the season. And um, really through, the, through all the collects, we end up asking for everything that we need in the Christian life, kind of mapping onto the, the church year um, and gathering our, kind of focusing our prayers with a seasonal color. So I think of the collect as almost like the spice in the liturgy. Like everything's basically the same, except the collect. And then there's two other spices, times where the seasonal spicing comes in. The proper preface, right before we sing holy, 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 after we do the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts, that whole bit. That bit is also seasonally spiced. Um, but those are the only two um, seasonal bits. Well, the acclamation. Uh, but and the acclamation, yeah. that's true. And that's seasonal too. those are only in your... No, those are in here too, actually. Really? Yeah, so, yeah, so if you look at Holy Communion, at the back, there's a supplemental section on page 152. So this is where the big book pulls it from. Okay. Yeah, page 152. Oh. Yeah, so you'll see we did the Ascension one on 154 today. So yeah, so that's the seasonal spicing. Um, Why is it called collect? Great question. Um, Not collect. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's really just a test to see how newbie is in something. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a shibboleth. A shibboleth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's actually the, it's the same word, of course, and it, the idea is that it's collecting our prayers with focus into collecting them into kind of an order together. So this is what we're all gathering, and so collects are all structured the same way. They describe God, but they address God by one of his attributes, almighty and everlasting, um, most merciful, you know, like God. Um, and then there's a petition for what we're asking God for. And then uh, most colleagues include also like some description of what we hope that petition will gain. So for instance, let's just look at like um, the one, let's look at what we prayed today on 600 and... 13. So today we prayed, um, and I say we because one of the liturgical ideas that sometimes missed is when, as the celebrant, I'm praying something, I'm praying it for us all. And so even though only my, li- only my voice box is activated, we are praying it. Same thing for the Eucharistic prayer, that I'm praying on our behalf. Um, and that's why there's this really... Um, deep connection between priests and people in a congregation and the, the reason the reason it's so much of our church is set up the way it is is because yeah well, we want to be connected so that when I'm praying that prayer we're praying it together 
So if we look at Sunday after the Ascension, O God, the King of Glory, right? Put that's an address fitting for Ascension. Describing what else? You have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. So that's the address, and then there's the petition, and it's almost always followed by a colon. Uh, I mean, the petition begins after the colon. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us. Um, and then, what to what end? To exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before. And then the last part is called the doxology. Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, and glory everlasting. So all the colleagues have roughly that same structure, um, and they gather our, they kind of, you know, we all come in here with different needs for the day, but we kind of gather, we collect all our things into kind of one funnel, as it were, with the collect. So um, here's a question I've had. So I have the 1662 International Edition, yeah. which one of the things I noticed is that in a lot of the colleagues, it just ends basically in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So when did the doxology enter into um, typical use? Yeah, so it actually never left in that... It was expected in the first drafts of the prayer book that the priest was so familiar with what the doxology oh, is. Okay. That it was it, when it said in the name of Jesus Christ, that it was expected that you would you would then just rem- from memory fill in the doxology. Okay. But then custom kind of and laziness shaved it off, and so the modern prayer books have added it back in okay. to like fully instruct. So, so you should read it in the name of Jesus, etc. Yeah. Amen. Who with you and the Holy yeah. Spirit lives gotcha. and reigns now forever. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then um, our lectionary is also structured according to the church year. Um, so we have the Old Testament. 99 times out of 100 is the sort of Old Testament tip, typological backdrop to the gospel. And hopefully you catch those pairings as they come out like, ah, you know. Um, so the Old Testament today was, was it Elijah? Oh, it's Acts. Oh, forgive yeah, me. Yeah, that's have, right. Yeah, we oh, yeah. So in Easter time, Acts replaces the Old Testament, but outside of Easter time, and actually in Easter time, actually you have the option. There's two different ones, and I kind of year by year kind of mix it up a little bit. But on Ascension Day, it was Elijah. Ascension Day was Elijah. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. So it's like Elijah going up to, so you, know, you kind of see these ways in which the Old Testament shadowed forth the fulfillment of, of what Jesus then fulfilled. But then the epistle is just running on its own kind of like cycle. And it's happily, accidentally has connections. But when they're there, they're kind of just, because the message of God is unified, it wasn't like that lesson was necessarily picked, except for the high holidays. And here, maybe just 10 seconds on the church here. The two great poles in the church here is Easter is the big one and Christmas. And each of the two holidays has uh, a season of preparation before it and a season of feasting after it. And so... um, we have obviously Lent and Eastertide culminating in Pentecost. And then after that, a long season of just ordinary Sundays until we kick up again with Advent, preparing for Christmas, and then Christmastide, and then Epiphany, kind of the revelation of the incarnate Christ, and Epiphany, and then Epiphany Tide, and then kind of ordinary Sundays, as it were, until we get into Lent again. And so it, it really, the whole church is not so complex. It's just two big poles with things on either side. Um, and so, yeah, so the New Testament lesson, the epistle lesson will map onto the high feasts. Like, obviously, it's going to be an epistle about the resurrection. It's Romans, you know. And, um, uh, but, like, for instance, pretty, starting pretty soon here, it, we're just going to be reading basically continuously through different epistles. So like a chapter or one Sunday, the next chapter, the next Sunday, more or less. Um, yeah. Why is it called doxology? Great question. In the collecting or the... What is the doxology? Yeah. So doxology is sort of the liturgical term for any time the church has just sort of thrown more glory onto the end of something. So we did it with the Lord's Prayer, right? When the Lord taught the disciples to pray, the words he ended with were, and deliver us from the evil one. End of prayer. But the church sort of added more sort of like glory, like honorific at the end. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Jesus didn't say those words. The church added those on as a doxology, just a way of sort of ending on a note of praise. And so that's a better way to say, ending on a note of praise. So we sing just praise when we sing, when we bring the offering forward, that's the doxology, but really it's just a doxology. And then in the collect, when we say, who with you and the Holy Spirit, we like come to bring to mind the whole Trinitarian vision, all honor and glory forever and ever. You know, we're just 
uh, ending on a note of praise, doxology. So do, the Greek word is doxe, which is the word for glory. Yeah, so doxo logos, word of praise. Um, all right, uh, and then, yeah, Deacon, did you want to mention about the incarnatus at the creed, which we would do after the sermon? Sure, yeah. So um, if you look in the Nicene Creed on page 127, you'll see um, about halfway through the second clause. So starting at, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, if you go down, there's a full sentence, and then the next sentence that starts, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. And um, so what you'll see sometimes up here, if you're watching us, uh, we'll do, a, do like the deep bow, um, and, it, and depending on space and, you know, sometimes uh, in, uh, in previous locations, we've, during Christmas tide, we've gone to a full yeah, we've kneeled, kneel. Yeah. Um, but uh, most Sundays we'll do like a bow. And that's for the proclaiming the truth of the incarnation. And one of the things that was really neat to me when I first came into Anglicanism, my first Sunday at Christchurch, we did the creed and like we hit and was made man and I had chills. And part of that, if, if you've talked to me, you know that before I studied um, like a lot of the fathers, I, you know, after studying like Athanasius, I realized that I lived most of my life as a seminarian. Um, so that, you know, hearing that kind of having, getting those chills was I think God saying, there's some truth here that you need to know. And, and so sometimes that still happens, like, you know, even talking about it, I'm getting them, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And it's sort of a gesture of just of awe that like, yeah. God became a man. <laughs> like, and uh, just reminding ourselves of the awfulness of it. And this is like, you know, this is C.S. Lewis some, has said that this is the central miracle of the Christian faith is, is the incarnation that God mm. became a man. Mm. Um, you know the it, that's it's not it's not that that it overshadows the resurrection, but the resurrection can't happen unless Christ died. Christ died. Christ couldn't die unless he was a man. Mm. So everything hinges on the fact that God became man. Mm. Even our dating system, when we say A.D. Anno Domini, the full phrase was in the year of our Lord's incarnation. Yeah, which is why it's dated to roughly his birth. That we didn't redate the calendar off of. This is just the earth of the resurrection. But yeah. Um, all right. Then last thing for today is um, kind of coming back to this time of the cross. That with the confession and absolution, you'll notice that the prayer book um, has, as it were, like three degrees of absolution. One in morning prayer and evening prayer, and and then one in the Eucharist, and then one in private confession. Um, each one um, sort of. Uh, sort of uh, with increasing gravity. Uh, so if you look at morning prayer on page uh, page 12, the traditional um, absolution is for the prayer book is the first one, um, which simply reminds us that there is a gospel which we can believe and truly repent and that the minister has... I'll just read it. Uh, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, desires not the death of sinners, but that they may turn from their wickedness and live. He has empowered and commanded his ministers to pronounce to his people, being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins. He pardons and absolves all who truly repent and genuinely believe his holy gospel. For this reason, we beseech him to grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit, that our present deeds may please him, the rest of our lives may be pure and holy, and that at the last we may come to his eternal joy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, many liturgical scholars have actually reckoned that this is actually not an absolution proper. This is just a reminder that there is grace in Jesus Christ when we repent. It has more of the quality of a reminder than an authoritative proclamation. Um, we, see a, we do see an authoritative proclamation in the Eucharist. Uh, now, in our modern prayer we also have the second option, which is an absolution. Anyways, but keeping that language we just heard in, the, in your ears... Look at the Eucharistic one, which I know you're very familiar with. Um, so, for, for, like, for instance, on page... 130? Yeah, 130. 
Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him. That's a proclamation of the gospel. Have mercy upon you. Right? I, as the celebrant, have the tremendous dignity and privilege of getting to pronounce pardon and deliver you. That's in the sort of the justive voice, which is may it be, right? Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen your goodness. So there's, a, there's an authoritative declaration there. Um, and then there's even one other third variation of absolution, which if you look at the ministry to the sick, uh, page 223. If, um, if you make confession one-to-one with a priest and you make the confession one, two, twenty-three, the absolution then on the top of page 224 is the, um, the ancient um, early medieval form. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given power to his church to absolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in him, still that proclamation of the gospel, of his great mercy forgive you all your offenses and by his authority committed to me, I absolve you from all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when Jesus um, entrusted what the church is sometimes called the power of the keys to the ministers, when he says, whosoever sins you you forgive, they are forgiven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. I'm mixing up there John 20 and Matthew 16 and 18. Um, This in private confession is very clearly, like unequivocally, the exercise of that ministry. Like, I absolve you. Like, here it is. It's it's slightly less clear. It's slightly less strong brew in the uh, general absolution. It is still absolving, but there's a way in which, like, I don't know who's truly repentant in the midst of the congregation, right? Whereas if it's one-to-one and you're like, here's my sins, it's like, I absolve you. You know, that's the sort of, I think about it almost like different degrees of medicine. This is a bad analogy, but like the difference between sort of like heavy, high pain medication or ibuprofen or something, it's like, this is like the strongest medicine we can give, the best we, the church can minister in, his, in God's name directly. But then in the general service, because it, it, there isn't the same intimacy of one-to-one, it's like, well, some people might be truly repentant and others might have just been zoning out. I'm going to declare that there is absolution for those of you who, who meant what you just said. And in good faith, I trust that that's everybody, but the language is slightly dialed back to make room for the fact that someone might have just been zoning out. And it's not the same like, I absolve you in the same way. Um, so there's kind of those differing degrees of absolution we'll see in the prayer book. Um, but uh, but the, the Eucharistic one has always been is styled in that way, that if you have meant even half-heartedly the prayer of confession, that you have con- should have confidence that Christ himself has forgiven you from your repentance. And that's why... Yeah, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, for the many different things. So, so then that, that brings us then um, uh, to the, um, uh, we would come to the offertory where we'll pick up next time with the offertory and to the end of the liturgy. Any last questions for tonight? Just a quick one on, I've, I've heard, so I just want to ask if you know, over the course of three years of the lectionary that's read on Sunday mornings, yeah. how much of the Bible is actually covered? Great question. Um, uh, in terms of like the big storyline of the Bible, or just in terms of like total quantity of the pages? The, the pages, the, the verses. I don't know the statistic off the top of my head. I would, shooting from the hip, from just having been through it a few times. I know the Daily Office lectionary is much more comprehensive. Like you basically have everything except Chronicles and a few other chapters here and there, maybe the end of Leviticus. There's a couple little missings, but um, in the Sunday lectionary, I would guess it's... I would guess it's 70% of the gospel material, maybe 60% of the rest of the New Testament. And for the Old Testament, it's probably in the neighborhood of 15%. There's a lot left out of the Old Testament. So it's, it's really... Sunday lectionary is kind of greatest hits. It's not, it's not a comprehensive read-through. The, the daily office, because of the exclusion of Leviticus and some others, it would be 90%. Yeah, or, or 95. 
Yeah, and daily office, you're doing the New Testament twice in a year, New Testament Gospels twice in a year, and then the Old Testament once in a year. And um, by page count, yeah, 90% would be a safe, safe number, but yeah. And then the omissions are all do are almost all just duplicative of the material in Samuel Kings. Not that it's not of its own inherent value, but for the teaching cycle of the year. So, yeah. And I think, if I remember correctly, what's what's left out on Leviticus is... Um, well, there's also some stuff left out in Judges. There's a few chapters. Yeah. Judges. There's a few, the, the, yeah. So, actually, if you want to see... Yeah, there's, a, there's a good write-up. And, yeah. yeah, if you look on page... Um, um, so, the... If you, you know you've kind of fully gotten the Anglican bug if you ever find yourself reading uh, in, introduction to a material in the prayer book on your free time, then you know that all hope is lost. Um, but there's some good instructions on like page um, 716 about the Sunday lectionary, which is on a three-year cycle. Um, but then the daily office lectionary, and they're two separate lectionaries, um, if you look on page 736, there's a description of, um, there's a few passages missing in Leviticus, Numbers. The land allotments in Joshua are left out, the, uh, and then a few chapters in Judges. The genealogies are kept. The, all the Genesis genealogies are in there. Um, some of the Ezra and Nehemiah genealogies are omitted. Uh, and then Ezekiel, some of the details of this um, prophetic temple are omitted, uh, and the majority of Chronicles. So. I think, but you can look at the pages. It's not a lot of chapters from Numbers, Joshua, and Judges uh, all together from Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezekiel. All together, it's no more than 30 chapters. And then Chronicles is its own 40-something 40, 40 chapters um, because we, read, we do read four of the chapters of Chronicles. So, um, yeah, so we, we, do, we get a great sampling of the Bible, but the Sunday lectionary alone is not sufficient for teaching that whole Bible. Yeah. All right, any other questions? Okay, well, thanks for coming to Mr. Goji Part 1. I'll end the recording. <laughs>